Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. We are extremely grateful for the support of our members and sponsors who continue to support us through this uncertain time. This episode is brought to you by premium sponsors of the 2020 World Congress, including Shuko USA, Karari America, Pole Facades, Techniform North America, Walter P. Moore, Roshman Group, and Permastalisa North America. Check out the links in our show notes for more information on these leading industry organizations. Hi there, this is Mick Patterson with the Facade Tectonics Institute, and I'm really excited today to have Mark LaFrance with the Department of Energy and Stephen Selkowitz with the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in our studio or in their home studios, <laughs> remotely uh, visiting our studio to discuss all things building skin. FTI is concerned with the big picture patterns of energy and carbon in buildings and urban habitat and envisions the facade system as the integrative nexus to leverage the built environment towards defined sustainability goals. And that kind of shapes the context of this conversation. So, Mark, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself by way of introduction uh, and what you're up to at the uh, Department of Energy? Sure, sure, Mick. Thank you so much. Uh, It's great to be here today to uh, discuss this with with the organization. And so basically, uh, I've been working at Department of Energy for almost 27 years on a variety of technologies. And I did spend a couple years uh, on a sabbatical in Japan and a few years in France. But most of that time, I've been managing Windows R&D. And so I, I do do a, a, an international work with China, and I do some residential work with heat pump board heaters. But my core technology that I work on is, is the window area. And I've been doing that for almost 20 years. And so uh, I look forward to, to describing uh, today with you about the activities we're doing and how we can better engage uh, with your members in the industry. So thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Steve, how about you? So I'm uh, sort of with the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. I was actually there for about 40 years. I started the Windows and Daylighting Group there. I led the Building Technologies Department for many years. I officially retired a couple of years ago, but I've sort of stayed on as an affiliate, and I've been involved in quite a number of the activities that still go on there. My background is was first in physics and then in environmental design. Um, I, my, my main interest at the lab and with all the other work I've done has been sort of spanning the full range from basic R&D on materials, which is kinds of things that Lawrence Berkeley Lab is well known for, to the real world practical applications of these things to kind of make make real impact in the real world, addressing the the big picture, um, climate change issues, carbon issues, and so on. Okay, interesting. Great. Mark, let me jump back to you. Can you comment on your on, on your the scope of your work at DOE in terms of residential, commercial, new and retrofit, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. And and like I said, today I'm just going to focus on my window activities. So <clears throat> we most of my my job is focused on uh, window R and D. So we're we're spending you know a lot of time on working in the next generation of technologies, uh, dynamic uh, solar control with all of the electrochromic work that we've done for a number of years. Um, you know that industry's seen two billion dollars of private sector investment. Even to this day, we still have some early stage research projects to try to get dramatically lower cost, uh, faster switching times, 
and also uh, neutral colors. So we have several projects in that area. And then another major element is the highly insulating windows. And we have several exploratory projects for vacuum glazing. Uh, but one of our big initiatives, uh, which is very near-term market, is for the thin triple. Basically, a uh, highly insulating window, a triple pane window, but with the same form and fit as a double pane so that you can install the insulated glazing unit into the vast majority of existing framing systems. So the window manufacturers do not need to upgrade that. And we made a lot of progress, and that's been uh, you know, one of the big efforts that LBNL has been working on. And, and you know, Steve actually was the original inventor of that. I think his patent is now uh, expired, so there won't be any royalties. But Steve's never been the kind of guy to to want to get that kind of uh, money out of it. His goal is to change change the world uh, for glazing, and uh, you know we have that mutual interest because you know, we want to we want to change that. So <clears throat> that's the the core technology. But we also do other things that are closer to market. We have a significant effort going on for window attachments and the the rating uh, activities for that. We've supported the NFRC for a long time. So, you know, we provide a significant amount of design tools for the industry, which is which is uh, things that we help the industry do. And then also um, later I can give you more examples of this. Lots of ways that we we do this work and how do we engage the private sector. Uh, and I, I can get this more details as to how we actually do our work with with, with stakeholders and partners. But that kind of gives you the, the, you know, the macro elements of the um of the efforts we're doing, but we are, we have a lot of other projects that I can go into more detail later, but I think that just gives you the, the flavor for the key effort, which is highland sitting windows, dynamic solar control, we do daylighting, and then we do market activities to, to help the industry bring new technologies to market. Okay, good. So, you know, I, I understand that you want to focus on windows, but can you comment on how your work with windows, your work at, at uh, DOE intersects with high-performance building facades? Well, that's a good question because – so I, I should have gave you a little bit more background about my office. So, you know, actually I work for the uh, Office of Energy Efficiency, Renewable Energy. Lots of – everybody knows about renewable energy, a lot of activities. And then I'm in the buildings technology office. So we work on, you know, anything dealing with the, with the built environment. And we have four main teams. We have an emerging technologies team, which is where I spend half my time for my Windows R&D. We also have a residential integration team, uh, and I spend that, my other half of my time on the residential integration team, which is a little bit of windows, but it also includes things like heat pumps and heat pump water heaters and other technologies that I'm working on. But then we also have our commercial buildings integration team, and they are, they're the ones that would work with the commercial industry. Okay, And then our last team is our regulatory team or appliance standards and building codes. So, of course, they work with windows as well. Now. When you look at the commercial buildings integration team, they haven't done a, a, a you know a lot of work with the facade industry or the glazing industry, and so uh, they tend to do more near-term energy management types of activities. Although just recently we started looking to do field uh, validation studies in commercial buildings for thin triple glazing, and we're still looking to this day for local partners uh, that would want to do a field validation, but. The, the key point is, is that I think there is kind of a disconnect between, you know, the design firms that are actually working on glazing and where we stand. So we may do the R&D for new technology and we may provide some support tools like the Comfen tool that helps people characterize higher performing windows. But we don't directly work 
with the A&E firms about designing buildings and, and uh, but we certainly would appreciate helping influence that industry. So how can people put more investment in the facade uh, while looking at a systems level approach? So for example, eliminating the perimeter uh, zone heating and cooling, uh, downsizing HVAC by putting value added facades. So we do support tools, but there's still kind of a disconnect between those, between the core R&D and that, and that part of the market. And maybe that's where Steve can, can help characterize, uh, you know, what his interests are in that area. And then also for me is, you know, what do we need to do to serve that industry? And I'll give you some examples later about more details about things that we do for strategic planning. But I think there is a little bit of a disconnect between, you know, that side of the market and the core R&D that we do. Yeah, I want to get into that. Let's let's try and and, and peel that back and, and see if we can understand better what that disconnect is about and how we how relevant, how important that is and how we might uh, correct that. Uh, but uh, l- let me uh, jump to Steve here. Uh, Steve, how, how has the work that you've done uh, with LBNL intersected with the, the work with Mark at the Department of Energy? So Lawrence Berkeley Lab is one of a number of labs that the Department of Energy uses to uh, help both manage its program and to actually execute the work. And uh, I think we're maybe the term has changed, but we're sort of the core lab for Mark in the fenestration, blazing daylighting area. There are other labs that provide other support, but most of it historically has come from LBL. It's actually started back in the in the mid-70s, uh, going back even before Mark's tenure there. And, um, and the, the lab itself is a basic science lab. There are 4,000 staff, um, been there for 90 years, 12 Nobel Prize winners, a billion-dollar-year budget. But within that scope, about 500 people work on on energy efficiency, environmental issues, and a couple hundred of those work on buildings and a smaller subset. It's a core team of about oh, 20 people, plus or minus, that work on Mark's program. And then Mark's program, because it's it's been around for many, many years and has, it has facilities at the lab that are unique in the country and the world, it's attracted other funding from other places. So the state of California, New York, others have, have co-funded work. So Mark actually gets to leverage his research dollars by a factor of probably about two on average in terms of the actual work that's being done. So the the activities then range from, I mean, they're, they're driven by the strategic plan coming out of DOE. Uh, they're also driven to some extent by other partners. California may have interests that are slightly different. Uh, we're occasionally funded by private sector partners as well. But the, the, the work over time has addressed these core issues of better te- technology, more of a focus on integrated systems, which Mark highlighted, and then the, the underlying tools and data that an architect or engineer would need in order to specify the kinds of solutions that will really work. And then once you've got uh, that those kinds of solutions, you want to verify and validate that they really work. So We've done quite a bit of work in field testing, well, in laboratory testing, so we can test a a piece of glass to determine whether its optical properties are really what a manufacturer says they are. We can help an organization like NFRC develop standards for rating windows. And then then when you get into more complex systems like how how does a window system perform uh, facing west in such and such a climate. We can test some of those in test beds. We do testing in real buildings where we have partners who own and operate the buildings with people inside. And, and then we do a lot of modeling and simulation. So there's a pretty pretty wide range of capabilities 
where LBL supports DOE. And in any given year, depending upon the details of Mark's program, uh, the actual activities will vary. Are, are you doing anything with uh, with Mark now and the DOE? Oh yeah, and, and I'm 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 going to use the, the the global we here because as I said before, I'm I'm retired, so I get to watch my friends and help them out a bit and uh, and, and help Mark out too. But yeah, there's a variety of projects um, these days focusing more on the characterization. Mark Mark mentioned the, the key issues of better insulating products. So there's the nearer term triple glazing projects that, that he mentioned. Uh, that was one, as he said, that I, I originally developed a long time ago, uh, but getting it to work in the real world as always is a lot more complicated than filling out a patent claim. And, and it's only been recently that some of the technology like very thin glass at very low cost has been available to, to make it feasible. So we've done a lot of modeling work. We've done a lot of testing work. Uh, we've engaged with industry partners. Some of those partners within two years have now have products in the market. And once they get on the market, then we get involved in testing them out in the, in the, in the real world. We also have worked in the case, in this case with California, there are some interesting code options. Now, California doesn't mandate triple glazing, but it does mandate highly insulating walls, and you can do better glazing as an alternative to those walls if they're better and cheaper. So there's been a, quite a bit of interest, surprisingly, here. And then, of course, we're working with groups uh, in the Northwest and other parts of the country. So this, the, and, and then the other big area that the lab has been working on for over 20 years is a whole broad topic of smart glazing. And again, this ranges from developing technologies that have been licensed to companies as a startup in the Bay Area that licensed technology from LBL. But the majority of the work for Mark has been supporting, well, for first making sure that the tools are out there. If you want to model how an electrochromic glazing works in the real world, you want to make sure that the physics models are right, the daylighting is right, and we've done a lot of work there. And then we've been involved in testing the operation of those. The, the sensors and controls issues become important with a with the dynamic smart glazing. So we've done a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of work there, both in lab testing and in real building testing. And then sort of that, that the feedback from that uh, helps inform Mark's strategic planning on what's missing, where the gaps are, what should be done next, as well as it helps the manufacturers in, in improve what they're making today. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. So you guys are, are kind of uniquely positioned to speak to where we're at, sort of the state of the art uh, in window and facade technology, what would you characterize right now as the, the, the in, in your extensive background of work here, the accomplishments, the missed opportunities, and, and how these things might shape future initiatives? So I think, first of all, I know you're mostly interested in commercial facades, but I think we have to really look at what has happened in the residential market. Okay, so we've come a long way within the residential market with extensive policies, starting from NFRC, you know, characterization, product performance, you know, then that led its way into Energy Star and building codes, but it all is based upon having a measuring stick or a benchmark, you know, the NFRC label, okay? And so if you look at what's happened is we have almost like 90% plus double pane low E in the residential market. But yet when we look at the commercial market, you know, we're still at like 50%, maybe 60% low E. We still have a very high number of aluminum frames that aren't even, that do not even have a thermal break, 
right? So we're still lacking the basic infrastructure that is needed in the commercial industry, right, to drive commercial fenestration. And what's happened is that, you know, we've tried hard. It's not like DOE hasn't tried this effort. We, you know, we put in large amounts of investment into NFRC to do a commercial program. They have a program, but it's very difficult to implement. You know, they're trying to streamline that. We're doing more uh, additional work to try to change that. So one of the things we started with NFRC this year is to do a market characterization of the commercial market. So where are the disconnects? Why don't we have higher levels of, of low E penetration? I should say not why don't we have it, but where is it? Where's the low E going? Where's the low E not going, right? Where are the thermally broken frames going? And you know, I think we all know that some of the large, you know, iconic buildings are getting the right products. But it, is it the strip malls? Is it the uh, hospitality industry? Uh, whether it's you know things like uh, hospitals, and so if we don't have a way to to support policy, so if somebody's going to put in an, an energy efficiency policy, you know they need a, a, a measuring um, a, a measuring stick or a benchmark to go by, and that is really lacking in the commercial glazing industry. And so, you know, some of the very proactive manufacturers, you know, they, they're selling very good products, but they like that market differentiation where they can sell value-added products and they don't need the measuring stick. But if we want to bring all of the lower performing products up, we need that. And we do have building codes, but, you know, we don't even know what kind of level of compliance we have with the building codes. Uh, you can't just look at a window and know what the rating is. You don't, you know, you don't know what the, the thermal break is. You don't know um, what the type of coating and the low emissivity uh, characteristics are. So there really needs to be much, much more effort on coming up with the measuring characteristics of glazing. And then that can drive energy efficiency policy, labeling, and all kinds of promotion activities that can really raise the market up. So, I mean, that, that's on the commercial side. So I'm saying I think we need we have a long way to go to get everybody up to higher levels. I mean, most of the work I talked about was, was R&D for the top end of the market, and we have a lot of activity there. But we need to bring this market up from the bottom as well. Well, does the progress that you made in the residential markets, does that just not translate to the commercial markets, or is it a fundamentally different market? Or, you know, what, what drivers do you not have in the commercial market to make it happen? Is it a code issue? Well, there's two distinct elements of the commercial market, as you know. So one is, you know, uh, manufactured units. And a manufactured, you know, factory-built product should be able to be follow a similar path to residential, right? Um, I mean, they obviously they have to meet higher structural requirements. They require, you know, uh, a lot of times aluminum or, or protrusions. And so most of the policies don't apply to commercial, but they, they could be extended to commercial, right? But currently the NFRC has residential size units. And so there's still needs to be some, some policy changes to make that happen. But the real problem, or I should say a problem, it's, it's a great opportunity, but it's, it's the, the challenge we have is how can you address the site-built products, right? And that's where we're talking about all of our larger buildings, uh, where it's on-site glazing, and uh, you know NFRC has a process in place, but that, in, that process just hasn't worked well. I mean, it was, they tried lots of things. You know, currently, they're trying to revamp that program. Uh, to make it more streamlined, to make it more cost-effective, uh, reduce the the burden to the industry, and so we from DOE really 
encourage that to happen. But there needs to be a lot of effort to move that forward. Yeah, I, I, I hope that we have the opportunity to get more into uh, how we can go about making that happen. Steve, how about you? I mean, what are you thinking about? Where are you coming from in terms of, uh, you know, the accomplishments, the missed opportunities and how these might, uh, in your mind, shape future initiatives? So, so there's a couple of ways, I think, of sort of framing the problem. One is, you know, is look at the market today, which Mark talked about a bit. There's a part of the market that basically just meets the code. There's a slightly raised part there, elevated part that kind of I call it the state of the shelf. It's looking at the best available stuff out there, but it's still available. And then there's the cutting edge stuff. And I mean, over time, I think what we see is we see things starting solutions that have, that have worked um, in one-off buildings uh, at, at the cutting edge sort of drift down to the state of the shelf. And eventually, if, if enough people offer them and the costs come down, then they, they get built into the code. So there's an intrinsic process that's been around for a while. One of the challenges is to speed that up. I mean, everything in the building industry is really, really slow compared to automotive or other things like that. So that's, that's one issue. The, the other is... Um, what are the market drivers? What are the things that influence either the building owners or the design teams that, that work for them? Because between the two of them, in the end, that's what drives, I think, the supply side. I think if you look back in the last a couple of years anyway, I was going to say five or ten, but maybe a couple, uh, there's been a fairly interesting shift to pay more attention to people in spaces, to productivity, to health, to well-being. Daylight is a big part of that. Uh, views are a big part of that. So the idea that you know you can make a highly insulating wall with 10, 10% window area, well, yeah, you could do it. You'll save you you might save some energy, but you're going to lose a lot of other things. So I think this whole issue of thermal and visual comfort for occupants in spaces and the connection with the outdoors is has become more of a market driver. That's good. That then forces the manufacturers to say, okay, if I'm going to have these larger glazed facades, how do I make sure that they at least meet minimum code and frankly meet the comfort requirements as well? The, the other sort of thing that's that's bubbling up now on, on the, the bigger picture side is looking ahead at 2030 and 2040. So we've been talking for a while about net zero buildings. Uh, California has a requirement that, you know, all on paper anyway, all uh, commercial buildings will be net zero in 2030. It's at least a stake in the sand. I mean, it'll get changed over time, I'm sure. Uh, California and other states also are looking to decarbonize the grid. So something like half or two-thirds of the energy used in buildings in the state is gas. It's gas heat. It's gas hot water. Uh, cooling and lighting mostly are, are, are electricity. If the state shifts massively to electricity for heating, then all of a sudden your classic summer daytime peak may shift to an early morning winter peak. And then all those single and glazed double single and double glazed windows out there are going to create a, a massive uh, electric peak early in the morning on a winter day. So there's all of a sudden now, so, so, so that kind of future co-driver uh, starts to, or, or should start to influence uh, how we think about future envelopes in the buildings. Also the retrofit of existing envelopes, which is another whole area. So I think these kinds of trends are, interest me in terms of, you know, what's coming in a, say, a 10-year time frame that we should be reacting to or planning for now. And then this broader issue of, of how people live and work in buildings. It'll be interesting to see whether our current medical challenges with the coronavirus also impact 
uh, how people occupy buildings and what they do there and what the densities are and a whole host of issues like that. I think it's probably too early to tell, but I would I would imagine something's coming there as well. Yeah, it does the the coronavirus does bring a new dimension to the discussion of the quality of the interior environment and especially the health uh, productivity issues that you brought up. Yeah, there's this one other thing I, I want to add, and that is that, and Mark alluded to it before, uh, that I think a while ago we tended to think of the window or the facade of the glazing as an element that you you stick into the side of the building and you expect it to just sit there and do its thing for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I think increasingly, if, if we now think about it, it's not just the glazing and, and the window, it's the shading systems that are outside the building, between the glass or inside the building, or it's a smart glass. So now, now we're talking about a system that's d- dynamic, that's operable, that can change state. And now the question is, well, how do we manage that? And, and that's a, that comes right back to a human factors issue. If I'm sitting in the, in the space, I mean, I'm sitting in a room now with a bunch of windows in my house. Uh, sun has passed by, but earlier in the day, the sun was shining in. Uh, there was a glare issue here. I might have managed the window. I, frankly, I just left it because I enjoy the light and I'm not doing a visual, visually demanding task. But if it was an office environment, I might have tried to change the glass or the window to control the glare. I'm not thinking it's California. I'm not thinking too much about heating or cooling on a nice May day, but uh, you might want to manage it that way too. So now all of a sudden, that smart window or, or window system has to be tied into the energy management system of the building. Uh, it needs to be thinking, or maybe it needs to be talking to the building about the either past or present or future heating or cooling load. And that in turn needs to then jump to well, what's the grid doing on my block or my city or my region. And I know that DOE has a whole new initiative on, um, what is it, energy mark, so it's, uh, energy efficient grid-enabled buildings. Well, yeah, it's called grid interactive efficient buildings. Or something. Grid interactive, right. And so, so the idea isn't that, is, is, it, is that the window doesn't just sit there and and be managed by the environment but you can change the state of the window to in order to change the the profile that the building presents to the grid in terms of how much energy it needs and then you can throw in a little bit of extra you can throw in the interest in uh, building pv systems into the windows there are three or four companies now that will add a coating to your window and the window can now generate power so there's a variety of really interesting new things coming on, both on the technology itself and the way that technology is integrated first into the building and then into the broader grid. Those PV uh, glazings are that's a, a coating that can be added to the to the window, the glass. Yeah, there's a few different flavors. There are some that are literally coatings, and there are some coatings that you can see through, and you you wouldn't even know that they were there. Now, because you can see through them, they let a lot of light through. The efficiency isn't as high as it might be. There are other other solutions that embed uh, a more conventional opaque system into the uh, into say a laminated glass, and if they have fifty percent uh, PV cells and fifty percent you know open area, then they'll have about half the light transmission. So you can see out them. It's like looking out of the, out of a Venetian blind or something. And those are those are good for overhead for atrium and skylights and things like that. So there's a fair amount of innovation going on here. But once again, that that now requires or demands that the window be hooked up with wires and AC to DC conversion. So all of a sudden, that that static piece of glass which you might have put there and let sit for fifty years, all of a sudden now that needs to be integrated into other systems in the building. And that's a real challenge, frankly, at a whole variety of levels at the design level 
the construction level and the operation level. It's a challenge. It's a great opportunity, but it's a challenge as well. Uh, you've been a champion of that kind of integration through the building skin for a long, long time, uh, you know, and I know the fantastic work that you did on the New York Times building and stuff. So let's see if we can come back to that. But uh, you brought up retrofit. And Mark, I'd like to ask you, how do you think about retrofit? Uh, you know, what percentage of the work that you've done at DOE has been focused on new building as opposed to new buildings as opposed to existing buildings? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm glad you brought that up, Mick, because um, <clears throat> obviously, you know, we can talk a lot more about policies about new construction. And we, we touched base on that a little bit. And maybe we can expand a little bit more on the high end of the market for new construction. But when we work on new technologies, right? If it's a window technology, a glazing technology, you know, we're trying to develop that for both the new construction and the retrofit market. So if somebody's going to replace a window, a lot of the things are the same, right? But we've also done quite a lot of activities for existing for, for existing windows, right? So, I mean, from a policy standpoint, we would always like to see somebody replace the window first, right? Upgrade it to the best they can or whatever they can afford to do. One of the barriers to doing that is the fact that we don't look at the system level impact and 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 being able to justify it on on reasons that, that go beyond the window, right? If somebody decides, oh, I have a really inefficient old window and I'm gonna replace it anyway, then we can usually justify putting in a, a higher quality window because we're only gonna be paying the premium versus uh, the large cost of installation, right? So that part there needs uh, it works pretty well once people decide to do the window. But getting more people to decide to replace their windows is something that's really lacking. And that's where we need to, to drive that from a system level and from incentives and for a whole variety of things. But when somebody has an existing glazing system and let's say it's just cost prohibitive, they don't have the investment, and they're like, okay, how do I make, make my building more efficient and more comfortable? Well, the one thing that we've done a lot of work on is the secondary glazing system. So uh, going back, this was, uh, you know, this was basically initiated at LBNL, uh, doing for residential initially for low E storm windows, and we did a lot of performance uh, measurements in the laboratory, and then we started doing some field studies. It's a long process, but we did lots of commercial residential field validation. Uh, and then we actually, for the residential side, we worked uh, we worked with EPA to get it be, to become uh, an Energy Star. So we now have an Energy Star Low East Storm Window Program. And working with AERC, the Attachment Energy Rating Council, they actually have a, a now a, a performance metric for residential. And as we speak, uh, they're working with the secondary glazing system industry to come up with commercial uh, ratings for secondary glazings. We also are working with them on uh, cellular blinds, uh, cellular shades and uh, solar solar shades and a whole variety of, of products. Uh, in the case of cellular shades, they also uh, reduce your U-value. Uh, but in the case, most of the other products that we're talking about solar control. Uh, so for example, what's the performance metric of an exterior shade versus an interior shade? We know an exterior shade is going to perform significantly better. And then if it's an interior shade, if it's a you know, if it's a, a dark colored shade versus a light colored shade, you know, obviously the performance uh, varies uh, significantly, but it also is highly dependent upon the base window. So if you have a, a clear glazing, you'll get a certain performance rating. If you have already a low E, double pane low E, well, uh, any shading pro product on the interior is going to be less impactful uh, because most of the energy has already come through and it's hard to go back out again. So, 
I don't want to get too technical here, but there's lots of characterization of these different performance elements. Um, and LBNL is really, you know, the, the scientific uh, center of excellence that basically comes up with these algorithms and the modeling techniques that help derive the performance numbers. And then they work in partnership with the Attachment Energy Rating Council, AERC, and that's how we get these performance metrics. So for the existing market, we're doing lots of, of these activities for things that consumers and building operators and facility managers can do to make their existing buildings more efficient. Uh, but we always say our first priority is to replace the windows uh, with the best that we they can afford. And in this, in this day and age, we're pretty much talking about a double pane low E with a thermally broken aluminum frame if it's in a uh, high structural application. And then, of course, we do lots of things on the high end of the market, which maybe we have time to go into some more discussion there. But hopefully that, that gives you a, a flavor for the, some of the activities that we're working on. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, what do you what do you see in terms of opportunity with uh, this kind of retrofitting of uh, existing buildings? Yeah, I want to I just want to start with to emphasize one point that Mark made, and that is that the lab over the years with support from DOE has built databases of essentially all the glass sold in the U.S. I think there's 5000 different glazings and now building out this database of shading systems as well. So it used to be when we started a long, long time ago, if you wanted to know how a combination of glass and coatings and shading would perform, you would build a prototype and send it off to a lab and pay them a couple thousand bucks. And a few few weeks later, you'd get back a number and maybe it didn't look right and you'd do it again. Now in 30 minutes in the afternoon, you can download Windows software various other tools with these databases and in 30 minutes you can calculate all those numbers and they've been validated in a variety of ways so that we have pretty good confidence that they really work so that's been a hugely important part it really speeds up the innovation cycle it also allows you on the retrofit side to say well i've got this existing glazing what if i now add a a gluon solar control coating or i put that interior storm on what will that do to the overall properties of the full window and you can calculate these things almost instantly with very little trouble so one of the other things we've done, you know, as, as a scientist with my scientist hat on, I, I can calculate this stuff and I believe the results and we're finished. If you're a building owner and someone's saying, well, we want you to spend $100,000 to retrofit with interior storms in this low rise office building, you might say, well, you know, this is an invisible coating. Remember, these low heat coatings are invisible. How do I know this stuff really works? I've got three different vendors offering me three different products. So one of the things that we've done is we've done field tests in these buildings. One of the partners, this is your textiles that work again in a slightly different way with Mark, but this GSA is the government landlord and GSA has had a program, the Green Proving Ground program that works with Mark's program at DOE to take the technologies that are coming out of Mark's program, deploy them in government buildings, and then places like LBL will come in and do the test. So there's an objective source. So the, the company is supplying the technology, but LBL staff are measuring the results, publishing the report that um, GSA and DOE sort of approved. So so this is sort of a stamp of approval there. At least it shows that the stuff works. Or frankly, occasionally it shows that it doesn't work or it doesn't work as well as you think, or it works really well in the West, but not in the South and things like that. So there's a variety of ways that we kind of can help leverage that along. Also, when you get involved with that kind of field work, then you also discover where the gaps are. And we can bring those gaps back to Mark and put them into the next 
round to strategic planning and say, hey, we've discovered that we don't quite know this as well as we thought, and we should spend a year kind of trying to solve these problems. So it's a dynamic process, and it, you know, it, it, it works about as, as well as, as, as you would hope it would. Uh, it works really well at times and not so well at other times, but we're all human, and, and th- these are complicated things as well. And then in the midst of all this, of course, you've got the suppliers in there, and um, it's been interesting over the years to work with companies, lots of great companies doing really great work. Sometimes you get a good product, but the application for the product isn't ideal, and sometimes the, either the modeling work or the field, field measurement work will help point that out and point them to a better solution. I think there's a great opportunity in general in the retrofit world. I mean, in any given year, you know, 99, uh, new construction is what one to 2% of the existing stock. So in any given year, your challenge is the other 98, 99%. One, one aspect, I'll just point out one more thing. The interior storms are a great opportunity on the commercial side, but when the windows are bigger then that glass gets to be pretty big and heavy, uh, we mentioned before, Mark mentioned the thin triple, which uses a very thin piece of glass, one millimeter or so. And uh, one company has taken that thin piece of glass and made an interior storm out of it, laminated a piece of plastic to it. So if by chance it breaks, the glass is held in place. Uh, very lightweight, very easy to retrofit with a simple frame. And we hope there'll be a great success uh, in the market over the next couple of years. Yeah, that sounds like a, a great product but to you know to to backtrack just a little bit you know you're talking about you know this all of these um various glass products 5000 or whatever that you've tested uh you know and and the shading systems as well these seem to be incredibly valuable assets and resources for the building community what what has been the adoption i mean are they are they em- widely embraced or or what yeah so i I, sh- I should have mentioned that first of all so the tools were all developed by uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab with DOE funding. And because they were funded publicly, they're all available for free for download. So maybe uh, somewhere at the end of the of the talk here or on, on the website, on the FTI website, if you're not aware of how to get these, we can sort of link you to that. So the, the software has been around for 20 years. It's, been, it's updated every year or two. The databases that drive the software are updated four times a year. So there's a process by which a glass manufacturer su- submits data to LBL. LBL has a review group that, that takes a quick look at it. If, it. if it passes review, it goes into the database. So at any given time, the database really does reflect everything that's on the market. And the shading database is a little bit behind that, but coming up rapidly. So both the tools and the databases that support the tools are readily available. The, the last time I remembered looking, there were something like 40,000 downloads of that software each year. This, this The main software is called Window. Therm is the software that allows you to design uh, a framing system. It's it's the opaque sash and frame of the window. Radiance is the daylighting software. And there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of other software tools in the, the whole building world of Energy Plus. But the main window tools are Window, Therm, Radiance, and some of the supporting databases, all available for free, all updated on a regular basis as part of Mark's program. And your, your sense of it is that the A&E community has, uh, are making good use of these tools? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the uh, – we don't – I mean, there's an 800 number or a call number in an, in an email line where people can, you know, ask questions, bring in quotes. We, we, don't, we don't track individuals, but for a while, if you run the – run Windows software online, it checks to be sure – 
that this that the associated glass database is the most recent one if it's not it tells you that so every time someone check every time someone uses the software and checks to see if the database is there some something pings at LBL somewhere. I don't know the details of how that works. But at some point, what I remember, again, I haven't looked at this recently, was that software is used several thousand times a day. So it, it really is a mainstream tool. If you do, uh, if you go to a conference or a meeting and you you ask people what they're using, most of them are using that. I should say it's really global. I think half of the users are overseas. That makes good sense because many of the big firms that offer products are global and many of the larger A&E firms are global as well. Uh, and, and in fact, one of the areas that we're improving on this in the uh, Glass database, this is really the only game in town. The shading database, there's a group in Europe called the, uh, the European Solar Shading Organization. There's now a joint project between Lawrence Berkeley Lab and the Fraunhofer Institute and the European Shading Organization to expand these multiple databases and come up with a single global uh, sh- shading database system. There's a lot more detail and complexity than I've described there, but the idea will be that you'll have access to that globally. So that's in process now. It's been going on for a year or so, probably another year before it sort of starts having output, but that's going to ha- help us as well, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, this is a good, I think this is a good pivot point to uh, kind of shift the perspective a little bit. And you've got a lot of, you have a lot of a broad base of industry folks out there listening to this podcast and you guys' comments. Mark, what do you think, you know, you guys have both started to talk about grid decarbonization and this kind of thing. What can the industry folks do to facilitate this movement toward resilience and sustainability objectives? Okay. Well, I just wanted to make a couple of comments before we move into that. So one, I just want to clarify on the, the, for the uh, tools, just so that, I mean, very unusual that that with a government program like we have with LBNL and DOE tools that we have like over 90% of manufacturers using those tools. But even you might talk about the facade, you know, we actually, when people build a design a curtain wall, uh, many, many people are using the therm tool for the actual structure of the building to reduce the thermal shorts when they design a curtain wall. So there's lots of utilization of that tool from the design community. When we start talking about grid interactive and sustainability, I mean, there are some of these elements, I mean, certainly the sustainability, DOE has a high priority on it. For resiliency, we have a high priority, but we haven't done as much specifically on those issues. When it comes to grid interactive, we've done significant amount and we actually, I can't go into any details, but there's recently uh, postings of, of a new initiative that's going to have a large funding opportunity that's available for potential partners to uh, to work on. But basically, you know, it includes the entire built environment, so it goes way beyond windows. It includes all of the you know the the typical HVAC loads, and and it probably include uh, electric vehicles and all of the the uh, distributed energy systems. But bringing this back to you know, the fenestration and the facade industry, when you do the analysis and you look at some of the case studies that have been done for dynamic solar control or electrochromic windows, I mean, we can also do this with automated shading as well, not as effective as electrochromic uh, unless it's exterior shading, but we see large, large impact on peak load reduction. So we're looking at like 35%, up to 35% peak electricity reduction in a commercial building if you have a dynamic glass um, that you can reduce all of that heat as a response 
to the grid conditions or to the pricing that may may occur. But let's say, for example, somebody even and you can still maintain your view to the outdoors. But let's say somebody's enjoying their view and they have a 20 percent visible transmittance coming through the glass and they like that setting. Well, if it's a grid situation, they may need to reduce that visual visual transmittance down to five percent or three percent. They still can maintain their view. Um, if they have a shade, they're not going to be able to maintain that view. So, and the savings, the energy savings are pretty significant, probably in the you know 15 to 20 percent range of of energy savings. But the peak demand is is really pretty extraordinary, and you know consumer satisfaction of dynamic glass is pretty high. Uh, I was kind of surprised to learn that some of the major manufacturers are putting a higher focus on the color of the glass because of the the A and E community that wants a more neutral color, color rather than some of the blue tones that are that come out when they use tungsten oxide, um, which is one of the the key elements of of the electrochromic glazings. And so, new, uh, neutral colors is what people want. But you know, to me, for for it to be ubiquitous in America, we need to get the cost down. So right now, it's great. People love it. It's got great peak load reduction opportunities. But generally, the cost is still relatively high for energy efficiency. That doesn't mean the value proposition is not there. If you have a very high, highly paid employee that has a, uh, a, a glass uh, facade that has a beautiful view and they want to maintain that view, what's the cost of, of investing in that facade compared to the, the annual labor cost of that employee? So people need to have those value propositions in mind when they do these investments. But but you know, getting back to you, you keep thinking about sustainability. People care a lot about embodied energy. So far, DOE, we've we've definitely acknowledged those issues, but we haven't gone too far down the path of of like the embodied energy and some of the other things that many other people are doing. We try to stay on our core focus, which is energy efficiency and then the interactive with the grid. Those are our, our core areas. But we we definitely recognize the importance of all the other elements. Yeah, and I mean that that brings some really interesting issues like uh, durability to the table. And when you're talking about new products, um, you know those issues sometimes get glossed over. But anyway, Mark, let me let me let me ask you uh, a little bit. You know, to push this sort of industry engagement a little bit further, you started out earlier in this podcast talking about the disconnect between DOE and and the industry. I mean, can you can you talk a little bit more about that and how we can maybe get beyond that? Well, yeah, and actually there's a lot of disconnects. And, and so I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to give the industry too hard of a time and listening to your members, but you know, first of all, when we start looking at energy policy for the window and the facades, right? So compared to many other technologies, you know, whether it's HVAC and lighting and all kinds of other areas, you know, basically the lack of policies has really hindered the growth rate for advanced technologies, right? So we develop technologies, the early adopters, uh, you know, install them, but we don't really have specific policies that are focusing focusing in on on the the glazing, the fenestration industry, and that is really something that the industry could do a lot more about, right? Be more proactive. From our perspective, you know, one of the problems we have when we look at the classic energy efficiency mind frame is that windows are very expensive to replace, right? Windows, windows <clears throat> generally 
uh, aren't seen as an energy uh, cost effective measure to do for energy efficiency. So people like all the energy service companies, they all ignore it, right? So windows really don't get enough attention uh, that they could if you did a systems level approach. So there's definitely a disconnect there. And I think, you know, we do engage uh, industry, you know, with our technology interaction for our road mapping. We don't call it road mapping, but we call it a research and development opportunity um, report. But it's basically strategic planning with industry. And so we periodically invite industry in. Uh, we get their inputs. Uh, we have strategic documents that we, we, that we publish. Uh, we're getting very, very close to issuing uh, one now that's getting – it literally could be within, uh, within a couple weeks – and we're going to seek input formally from the industry besides doing it informally. And this gives the industry a chance to, to respond to us and our priorities of where we should invest our R&D and uh, what should our objectives be. We have technical targets for uh, the different criteria and price points that we're trying to achieve. And so, you know, we've had many meetings in the past with industry and periodically we, we call people in. And so this next round is, is a chance for them to formally respond to DOE in response to our draft new strategic plan that we're, is now called a research and development opportunity report rather than a roadmap. But that's just a technicality well, in the terminology. We'll be looking for that at the Institute, and you, you can count on us to provide some, some input there. But it sounds like you regard the feedback loops between DOE and the industry as fairly robust. So on a technical level, from Mark LaFrance as a technology manager, you know, I go out to industry meetings, we interact regularly, my door is always open for people to contact me. <clears throat> but if I step back for a second and I say, you know, how engaged is the industry with public policy and the government, right? And basically, if I look at other industries and how much they they participate in DOE at at senior levels of government, right? Um the window industry and the, the glazing industry has really not really done that too often. They, they've, they've, they only come in under extreme situations. Um, and for, that's just the mentality that the industry has, you know, and I, I can go into a lot of details as to why I think that's the case. And obviously, you know, a lot of people uh, from the private sector, like see government as, you know, if we're nothing more than a regulatory body, uh, that's regulating their manufacturing and their carbon footprint and all of the other issues dealing with the production of a product, they may not want to deal with public policy on saying, how can we promote the sale of high performance products, right? So there's a lot, I mean, there's lots of sensitivities on, on how people engage the government and when it's appropriate for them to do so. And so I don't want to, you know, judge how the, the, the industry does that. But from my perspective, I would just say that the fenestration industry engages with the DOE a lot less than other industries. And, and that's just the reality of, of the situation we're in. And maybe that's because they're not that upset with things. And so they let things go as they, as they are. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I, we, we just recently, in recognition of this, launched an, an advocacy committee at the Facade Tectonics Institute. And both Steve and I, in fact, are on that committee. We're just gearing up and getting started, but you know we recognize there's there's a big gap to fill there. Steve, what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things to do is to look at how other industries kind of deal with this. And Mark alluded to this. A great example is LED lighting. About a decade or more ago, the lighting industry itself said, hey, there's innovation coming. Uh, We could use some help from DOE to uh, launch this or accelerate it. And the industry actually went to DOE and said, we, we want to engage more. And DOE ended up setting up a program that was sort of in the order of mark of $25 million a year, something like that, for over a decade. And now the money was let out competitively and all that through RFPs. But they basically made it a high priority. They said, if you can successfully develop the technology, you're going to save a lot of energy and do all the things that DOE wants. And that was enough to drive it. Well, I think Mark can make the same argument. And there are four or five quads of energy. A quad is worth $20 billion a year. Uh, now we have 10, 10, 10 billion dollars a year roughly. So it's forty to fifty billion dollars a year of money that goes out the window or in the window, literally, in terms of energy impact. And there is an opportunity there. And if the window industry, the glazing facade industry, acted like the LED slash lighting industry 10, 15 years ago, that would be a different model. I think one of the interesting challenges is that in the case of lighting and HVAC, which which have a I think a fair amount of industry input and engagement at DOE, both of those elements are plugged, are literally plugged into a gas line or a power line. And so you can measure the immediate impact of a, of a light bulb or, or a fan or something. Uh, wi- windows don't consume energy in the same way that a light bulb or a fan does. Uh, they impact energy. They impact the energy that either the lighting needs or that HVAC uses. Uh, but in an indirect way. And so you often see in a lot of lists at DOE and other places, here are the most important things that consume energy, HVAC and lighting and hot water and all that. And, and, and you don't see windows because they're a second order effective, if you will, there. So I think that, that that's one point. The other point is that HVAC and lighting typically get replaced in buildings every, what, 10, well, 15 to 30 years, let's say, roughly speaking. Windows, facades in principle are going to last 50 years. So make the point you made about durability and embodied carbon, you're going to make a decision on the facade of the building that's going to be in place for a very, very long time. So you could make the argument that it's even more important that you get it right the first time, either the first time in new construction, or if you go into retrofit, uh, you should retrofit it in a way that you won't have to think about it for, for another 50 years. And we don't think that way. And I think... You know, there's opportunity to rethink some of that. People, when people do retrofits, they often ask for a, what, a three to five year payback. That's silly. I mean, I understand why they may be doing it, but for something that's going to be in place for 50 years, it's hugely important. And the other point that that Mark alluded to is is the value of the, is from an occupant point of view, in an office environment, in a commercial environment, the, the round number is that, that uh, office productivity is about 100 times the value of, of, of energy. So if you can do something with a facade that improves comfort and enhances productivity by even 1%, it's the financial equivalent of having 100, 100% energy savings. So now those are fuzzy numbers. I, I, I get it. But, but at some level, they're real. And translating that into a design decision that an owner makes is a real challenge. And DOE has done some work in this area. Others have funded some work in this area. But I think there's an opportunity there. The, the last comment to make is that since dollars are, are always important, there's been some interesting work in Europe um, to try and overcome this first cost challenge uh, on the expense of the facade. 
and then the operation of the facade to think about leasing the facade. I mean, we, we, we lease cars today. We, and the, and the people you lease them from maintain them. We lease carpet today in office buildings, you lease computers. And when these things are, are, their time is up there, they're enhanced or replaced or, or fixed in some way. There's some, some work in Europe to look at, could we lease facades? And that would mean some company would invest a lot more money at the beginning to put in a high performance system. They'd make sure that it works reliably all the time. And then every 10, 15, 20 years, as pieces and parts needed to be upgraded or replaced with a plug and play approach, uh, they would do it. And in the end, I mean, the performance of the building would be much, much better. Performance of the people would be better. The finances would probably come out better overall to all parties, but arranging things so that you get the right, the right signals to the right players at the right time, that's the real challenge. In the market today, for first cost driven, not paying attention to operating costs, not paying attention to people's costs, doesn't tend to optimize the system that way. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting concept. So, I mean, it represents a structural change in, in the, the market, which, which I think is really what we need. Mark, you know, so you talked about policy, uh, you know, the policy issue, which is definitely important. How critical is it to get commercial fenestration ratings mandated and, and enforced to get utility programs and incentives in place? And, and what do you think about that? I, I think it's essential, right? So, and I did mention this previously about getting the, the measuring stick or the benchmark. That gives right. everybody a foundation as to how can they they, they, how do they specify a performance uh, incentive? Like, so for example, there was a tax credit, maybe it was 10 years ago, and it was for the commercial buildings, and nobody knew how to apply it to the envelope or to the windows. And they just decided to divide it by one third for opaque envelope, one third for windows, and I think it was one third for, for HVAC or something like that. And so the point is, is that if you want to have policy, you have to have a mechanism to put it in place. The other thing I would say is that you know, I talked a lot about bringing up the floor of the industry. So all of the laggards in the industry that are putting in the, you know, clear glass in America today. I mean, it's kind of shocking that, you know, here we are speaking in 2020 and we talk about sustainability and all the things we need to do to reduce the, the energy footprint of the country. And yet we know somewhere in America today, well, maybe not today because of COVID, unfortunately, but but typically there are people that will still install a clear glass window. Uh, or non-Louis window with a regular aluminum frame in some commercial application, right? That's still happening much, much more than it should be. But on the other side of the spectrum is how do we promote the high end of the market as well? Because if we have incentives for the high end of the market and the more people that go towards the high end of the market, then that also helps to bring things up. If if we start looking at the next level of of building codes, when somebody does an analysis for building codes, they look to say, okay, you know, what's available, you know, what's cost effective. So they're never going to put in a building code for something that's innovative and just coming on the market. It has to be widely available, cost effective, you know, all of these criteria they look at. And so helping drive the market on the high end and having policies that promote the best, the best available on the high end helps bring the whole market up. So we need to do both, bring the market up from the high end, but also ensure that we don't have really inefficient windows going into buildings today in 2020, right? So we need to do all of that. And quite frankly, I mean, when we look at the commercial fenestration industry, they just, 
they just don't seem to be engaged on a public policy mechanism. They just they just don't seem to to appreciate what's possible. So like like Steve was mentioning before, I think he said something like like forty is it forty billion dollars worth of of energy costs that are that are wasted through windows. Well, at the end of the day, you know. Do we would we rather have a lot of energy be wasted in windows, or do we want to have more value in buying high performance windows and less energy being consumed? Now, there's, there's a time lag there that needs to be corrected, but the it's just a philosophy. It's like okay, if you have a very inefficient window, you're wasting all that energy. You know, let's put the money into the value of the window and less in the operation of the energy that's wasted through the window, and. I mean, the other thing that we we haven't even talked about today was, you know, all of this about reducing the cooling loads and highly insulating windows. But people forget that, you know, the sun is an enormous benefit in buildings. We can have passive heating in buildings. And, you know, when we move from clear glass to low E glass, you know, we reduced our passive benefit for the wintertime because the impact of the nighttime uh, heat loss from not having a low U value and then the summertime cooling, you know, was more advantageous than getting the passive heating. But if we have a dynamic glass with a highly insulating window system, we can get the best of both worlds. We can get passive heating in the, in the wintertime when we need it. And then we can have very low solar heat gain in the summer during the, the cooling zone where we need to have a lot of cooling energy. And, and we can really have so much better performance. But that value proposition is just not being made. And so the only way to truly get there is through lots of integrated policies. And we need the industry to engage at the state level, the local level, the federal level. And you know, there's all kinds of opportunities for policy involvement. And, and I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's some elements going on, but there's just not enough. And I, I just think you know, from DOE, what we can do is we can do the analysis at LBNL, and we do a lot of work at NREL as well and other labs. We can do that analysis to help the industry with factual scientific data and, and a basis that then could be used for public policy formulation. Now, we might not, may not be at the forefront of doing the policy at a utility program, but we can certainly do the science and the technical basis so that it's available to people to have a debate about the, about the public policy. And right now, we don't have anybody that's really at the forefront driving that forward and saying, hey, we want to work with DOE. Help us do this analysis so we can help drive the policy going forward. And, and people don't seem to be engaging us on that level. And that's the sort of, sort of thing that we could do a much better job. Now, one exception is right now in California for residential high insulating windows, you know, LBNL in collaboration with the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory are doing exactly that, and they are starting to influence uh, the public policy. But for commercial buildings, for advanced facades, there's just not enough activity, and I think we can do a much better job. And and from DOE and from LBNL, you know, we want to help the industry do this. So so work with us, and let's find a way to do this together. Yeah, I mean, the dynamic glazing producers certainly have a vested interest in in making the case, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, and so, but I, I mean, it's it's also you know it 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 goes to there's at least three companies that have actually passed the durability criteria. We do do durability at Enrol, by the way. I didn't mention that in this talk. We do extensive work for durability performance, but we have several other R and D activities underway. We still have 
automated shades, which which can have a, a significant benefit. But then even just the the high performance glazings. You know, we we talked a little bit about comfort, but the advanced windows. You know, if you do it right with all the the different design tools that we have at the national labs, it's not just thermal comfort; it's also visual comfort. The whole concern about glare. So, how do you design a, an office space, and what kind of glazings and what kind of shadings do you put in place? And you know, the whole idea is to improve comfort. What's you know, we need to put a value on the comfort of the occupants, and that's something that we haven't found a way to do. So, I think there's a lot of elements that we can work on. Well, they've been trying to do that with the you know the productivity research that's been going on, but yeah, it's I understand what you're saying. We've got we're getting real close to the end here, Mark. I want to ask you one last question. Uh, this audience is definitely going to want to hear what you have to say about funding opportunities, uh, which have been relatively good the last few years. The DOE has funded a lot of research on technology. What about funding on code standards, guidelines development, and what do you see sort of just in general, uh, you know, into the future on opportunities for industry directly being funded by the Department of Energy? That's a great question, uh, Mick. So first of all, just to give people an order of magnitude, if we go back 15 years ago, the buildings program was funded roughly about 60 million per year. Uh, we had gone up to about 200 million, and then we dropped down to about 100 and I think it was 160 million. And now this past year, we're getting I think it's like 240 million. So we have a record amount of funding at DOE. Okay, and we have lots of opportunities that are coming out, you know, across the entire landscape of building technologies. And you know, we can't talk about the details specifics of a, of an announcement before something actually comes out that's available. But I just want people to be aware of some of the, the main ways that we fund the private sector. So one, uh, well, first of all, be, before we talk about that, we certainly fund our national laboratories and we do that as a direct funding to our national laboratories for a core amount, a very modest amount of funding at, at the national labs. So for example, LBNL does that on a, an annual basis, but every three years we evaluate it with the private sector uh, peer review. But then we put out solicitations and that could be uh, a private sector for-profit entity by itself or in partnership with an academia or with a national lab or whoever they want to, or independently, of course, can put in a proposal for direct funding. We also, so there's, and like I said, we have today, to this day, we have universities, like in the Windows program, we have universities that are doing, you know, vacuum, vacuum insulated glazing, and we have uh, dynamic solar control or electrochromic windows and different different. We also have a thermochromic in the R&D. So we have a variety of for-profit and academia entities that are currently on contract. And we certainly hope to have future ones that are available. We also have another opportunity, which people might not be aware of. It's where it's called a CRADA, a Cooperative Research and Development Agreement. And the way we work on that is, is we would fund a national laboratory to do to, to for their labor to work in collaboration with the private sector and that private sector could, could be any entity but the private sector pays for their efforts and the two of them mutually work together and then it's basically not funding going directly to the industry member but certainly we're doing research directly beneficial to them uh, and then there is an, an, a formal agreement to protect any intellectual property and also to handle any well to protect any pre-intellectual property, and then also to handle how would they, they treat any joint IP that, that, that is developed in that process. So that so we have these CRADAs, um, we have direct funding, 
And we also do, you know, just we'll call it informal partnerships. So I, I can say this publicly for our thin triple glazing uh, activity to, to this day. We have a collaboration with uh, Anderson Windows and, and Plygem. We're working with them. We're also working with Alpen Windows. So we can also work with the private sector without a formal agreement, just basically uh, support services and, and uh, help them with designing. In those cases, there wouldn't be uh, intellectual property involved. If there was, we'd need to have a formal agreement. So hopefully that gives you a perspective on, on the, the kind of things that we do. What is the best way for us to track these opportunities uh, or to uh, otherwise engage, uh, you know, th- those of us out here that feel that we have something that DOE would be interested in to engage with D- DOE? Okay, well, <clears throat> there's, I wish I had the, I can probably follow up with you. There's a thing called the Energy Exchange. And there is a website where we post all of our opportunities. And there's a way to sign up for the announcements that come out. So I'll have to, um, I mean, I, it's a well, long, well, long well, in our, in our follow, uh, in our notes for this episode, yeah, you can communicate that information to me and I'll put, put it in the notes for the episode. Yeah, that'd be great. And you've got me thinking about this disconnect between DOE and, and the industry. Uh, and I want to try and work on ways of providing more feedback for you. Would you be interested in FTI organizing a live forum for you to engage with the industry, you and Steve? Yeah, that would be great. I mean, I'd love to be able to engage people with questions. Um, so I definitely would look forward to that. And uh, I'd like to find opportunities, you know, during the, the current situation with COVID, with doing things uh, electronically from my home is great. But at some point in time, I definitely would like to engage the uh, the industry in person, you know, when we get back to meeting together again. And so I, I think, yeah, I definitely would encourage, uh, you know, improved collaboration with with uh, your membership. Well, I think by the time this this uh, podcast is aired, I'm willing to bet that the World Congress uh, that was supposed to happen this past March will uh, it'll be announced that it has been postponed until March 2021. So if not before then, that'll give us that opportunity, hopefully to, to do that in person kind of engagement. Listen, you guys, it's been great having you here. There is so much to talk about. I've got to, I've got to get you guys off the phone because I know you've got other things to do. But I hope we can do this again. Uh, I really want to thank you on behalf of all of us in the industry and especially those of us at the Facade Tectonics Institute for taking the time to do this. Thank you and have a great day, you guys. 